Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 10, Punk Rock Justice, which originally aired in 2017. This episode explores our love of crime and court stories from ancient Greece to the people versus OJ Simpson. So hop in the time machine and enjoy episode 10, Punk Rock Justice. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Awesome. What? When something completely and totally surprises you. You think that's awesome? Yeah, because especially in storytelling, I feel like these days our expectations are for things to be what they are, meaning that you see a movie, it has a trailer, you get the idea of what kind of movie it is, you want it to be that kind of a movie, and it needs to be that kind of a movie to be successful. But every once in a while, things come around that just totally surprise you and you don't see them coming. And that doesn't happen enough. And when it does, it blows me away. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that's where you were going with that. But I think I a lot of examples came to my mind when you said that. Yeah, well, the reason why I kind of wanted to start with that is I was thinking about this TV show, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Great show. It aired on Netflix, I want to say, nine months to 12 months it ago. On, it was on FX. Yeah, and that's now on Netflix, and you watched it first, and I think, man, if any show should be bad, just awfully bad, yeah, by, it should be that one, by right? By all accounts, it should have been like a horrifying, you know, lifetime movie, just cheeseball machine. Yeah, it looked like it, like it was going to be exploitive, it looked like it was filmed in like a very cheesy TV soap opera style it seemed like it had a bunch of, and I don't mean this meanly, but it kind of has been actors in it <laughs> that had their moment, like Kubik Gooding Jr., Kubik Gooding Jr., who's awesome, but not have, in the limelight. Yeah, we haven't seen him in a while. And, and John Travolta. Travolta, yeah, who's been out of the limelight. And man, was that awesome. It was so good. It actually inspired this whole podcast. Yeah, um, believe it or not. Because I, it was such an amazing show. I don't know if we're going to talk too much about that show, but um, in the idea of this podcast, because it, it touched on something that really resonated and I really wanted to, to deconstruct it. And the concept, I think it's episode three or four, where the character Johnny Cochran, who was the actual lawyer who defended OJ, said 
our job is to tell a story and our story needs to be better and more compelling than the prosecution's story. Right. And then it made me think justice as a story. And I kind of paused and went, Hmm, that's really midnight myth territory right there. I love it. Yeah. The whole experience of watching that show really stirred up a lot of, a lot of questions and a lot of, you know, really ambiguous ideas about what justice is. And you had characters really laying out uh, the concept of justice from their point of view, like Marsha Clark, Sarah Paulson's character, saying justice is vengeance for victims. And so, yeah, watching that experience, it really got us thinking, oh, how do how do our favorite stories and how do the most powerful stories deal with the concept of justice and uh, and further further their agenda about it or simply probe the depths of what it might be and if it really exists. And then sometimes even reflects a whole society's concept of justice Mm -hmm. and how that can then affect how it deals with things like criminality. Uh, I in particular want to talk about gender roles in society and things like that. How the the narrative around what is just and can be articulated vis-a-vis Stories and storytelling could then be a reflection upon how society goes about and actually creates a more or the less just society. Absolutely. And how can a story like that change our perceptions about how our institutions work? Yeah. And, you know, inspire us to do better. Because there's an example with the main, I want to say main character in the OJ Simpson, because there's a lot. But Johnny Cochran, who's certainly the most impactful and significant character for OJ and his side, and his whole motivation isn't really whether OJ did or did not kill this person. He's one of the few people on the defense team that never really even asks and doesn't really care to ask. For him, justice is shining a light on the racial inequities in the LAPD in the early 90s. And if he can do that, he's doing something just. And to him, he's willing to sacrifice whether or not OJ did or did not commit this murder, at least in the show, because I don't know in reality, he's willing to sacrifice that because he sees a bigger and better cause that's more just. And I thought that was a really interesting place to begin. Yeah, for him, justice was bringing a story out of the shadows. Yeah. And uh, if you guys listening to The Midnight Myth are thinking, How can a TV show about the O.J. Simpson, which was by itself when it happened, a gigantic TV show. Oh, yeah. How can that be any good? Trust me, it's really compelling. Go back and watch it on Netflix. Um, Super, super cool show. If our experience is any uh, any meter, it will take you no less than uh, one day. One day off. To complete watching it. Yeah, absolutely. And two days if you do like I did and watch it twice. Yeah, because you watched it and I was so skeptical that I wasn't going to watch it until you burned through it in a day. And I'm like, I guess I kind of have to see this. And then you watched it again with me. Spoiler alert. OJ gets free. Who knew? Yeah. So in keeping with that theme of justice being a story, I kind of want to reference a specific story from a specific time in ancient Greece. Uh, Should I kick this off? Are you cool with that? Yeah, I think you should go ahead. Uh, so for those of you familiar, there was this dude named, I'm going to butcher his fucking name, Aeschylus? 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 I, I've read it. I can't yeah, pronounce his Aeschylus. name. 
So he wrote something in the 5th century BCE, which stands for Before the Common Era, um, used to stand for Before Christ, but then they realized that that dating system didn't work. Yeah, that's so pretty now, flawed. Yeah, so it actually didn't reflect when Christ lived, so they just call it BCE. So 5th century BCE, so really, really long time ago, over 2,000 years ago, he wrote a whole series of plays discussing and talking about events that happened after the Trojan War. Right. And if you're not familiar, the Trojan War, it's supposed to take place in this time called Archaic Greece. So like 12th century BCE, where there was this really beautiful queen of Spartan or Sparta. She gets and marries a prince of Troy and all of the like major Greek heroes. They go sail to try to get her back and wage a war for 10 years. Yeah. So it's the major uh, epic of Achilles and Hector and. And uh, Agamemnon. Yeah. So Agamemnon, and if you've seen the Brad Pitt movie, you kind of get get the idea of who Mag- Agamemnon is. He's sort of one of the most uh, powerful of the Greek kings. So he, in the movie, he dies, but that's not what happens in the tradition of the Greek myth. Well, I'm sure he dies. Everybody dies. Well, yes, we're going to talk about his death in just a moment. <laughs> he actually makes it back to Greece. And when he gets back to Greece after the Trojan War... He finds that his wife, Clemestra, I might be saying that wrong as well. Is that Clytemnestra? Yeah, I, I'm not good at pronouncing these names. Um, is, That's why you have me. Yeah, I wouldn't, couldn't do it without you. Hmm. So he finds her, when he gets back to her kingdom, she's kind of in with another dude, and they kill him. Ouch. Yeah, it's not cool. You're the hero. So she she and Trojan her War. lover kill Agamemnon? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I forget the mechanism. I don't know if it's poison or treachery. Okay. It's been yeah, a I long just wanted time. to make sure I got the pronouns right. Yeah, it's been it's been a long t- long time. But uh getting to the the meat of it that Agamemnon has a son named Aristius, and this is where we get to justice. So Aristius is quite obviously perturbed that his father and his father's murder the usurpation of his father's kingdom of Mycenae, and uh, he takes it upon himself to commit vengeance. Now, actually, in the story, he is also compelled by Apollo. So Apollo kind of puts the seed that you need to get vengeance. So he kills his mother and his mother's lover. Now, this is very problematic because in ancient Greece, in the form of justice, matricide, which is the murder of your mother, is a major fucking sin. Yeah. And it's a major fucking crime. And you are Still cursed. Is. Now, in the ancient Greece mythic tradition, when you commit a major affront, you create a major crime, it upsets the order of the gods, and the furies come after you for vengeance. Oh, man. So, and this is an important point, because it symbolizes, at the time of the 5th century, that justice is... Tribal. And what do I mean by that? It's about righting a wrong, and it's about uh, individuals defending themselves or, by extension, defending their, their tribe. So think of the Old Testament that says an eye for an eye. It's outlining a form of justice where there's no courts, there's no police, there's no constitutions. How do you get justice? You need to seize it for yourself, and the gods will edge you along in this, and in particular the Furies. Well, Apollo, who kind of planted this seed into Aristius's mind to get this vengeance, is just like, no, 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 no. The Furies are not allowed to get vengeance on him, and he holds a trial. And a trial 
which would this would be in Greek mythic tradition, the first trial. In the trial, there's a series of judges headed by Athena, who, um, you know, an important sidebar, Athena in mythic tradition, this is around the time where they started to talk about Athena as having been birthed directly from Zeus's head. Not right. That isn't always the case for her backstory, but that, that is the case at this time. This will be important later, so I'll hold yeah, that but sidebar. Yeah, she just kind of sprang from his... Yeah, from his head. Um, yeah. not, that's not her original origin story, but that is at this time. So anyway, uh, Apollo then makes the arguments that the Furies have no claim to justice because the vengeance that Aristius did on his father usurps the natural law of not killing your mother. And his reasoning behind that, and I will quote from the play, the mother you call the mother of the child is not the parent, just a nurse to the seed, the new sown seed that grows and swells inside her. The man is the source of life, the one who mounts. She, like a stranger for a stranger, keeps the shoot alive unless God hurts the roots. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so angry. So he's essentially saying... Oh, that's horrible. A woman's claim to a child is irrelevant. It is the man's claim. Now, he uh. makes a lot of arguments, but there's a reason I want to focus on this one. Because this is the one that compels Athena, who has no mother, who says, yep, it's all about the duty to the father. Since I am not born of a woman at all, and her vote is what tips the trial. Now, a bunch of things are happening here simultaneously. So what this does in terms of the story, A, Aristius is innocent. B, it sets the role of womanhood and womanness in the ancient world. Yeah. As a permanent place subservient to men. And I thought Athena was my girl. Yeah, and... So it's important. I thought you had my back, Athena. Yeah, yeah, it's important that the Furies who are prosecuting the case for vengeance are females, mm-hmm. and that the main judge is a female. And it's not only just an overturning of the old order of eye for an eye tribalism. You get vengeance if you're strong. If you're weak, you don't get justice. So it overturns that and says no. Justice is based upon a trial, and this is actually used to set. The Athenian, so the ancient Athens court system, is based off of this myth. So this is actually used to set up a system of justice where it isn't about just people stabbing each other, but it has the um, converse unjust effect of relegating women as second in society. Now, to take it one step further, if you were to learn and study about the ancient Greek home, hey, how did the ancient Greeks in particular the ancient Athenians live. What do the archaeologists tell us? All of the women women quarters had locks on the outsides of the doors, meaning that oh my God. if the man wanted, he could lock the woman in the house and she could legitimately be a prisoner in her own home. But as horrible and as unjust as that is, it also set up a system where there was actually a system of justice right, for things yeah. to be based on rather than the tribal mentality, which led us to the justice system that we have today. Yeah, so it gives it gives a framework for process and for 
uh, you know, for attempts at fairness. And an attempt to have a trial, which it used to be, if you wanted justice, you had to, you know, go to your local king and ask for it, or you took it on your own, you know, and if you couldn't do those things, well, you didn't get any justice. (sighs) So the trial of Aristius, as documented there, had a lot to do with the Greek notion of justice, but also the Greek notion of gender role in society. And it's all about, and what makes it so cool is it's based upon a story. Yeah, it's a it's about one lawyer, you know, finding that inkling of something that he could hold on to and uh, using that, using that, you know, precedent, if you will, of Athena's birth as the the seed that plants in the in the mind of those who are actually judging the trial uh, and then has these massive implications for uh, for the roles of people in Western society. Yeah, like that's the implications of that are insane. Yeah, and it's also a shift in terms of the timeline where we're seeing Greece being reshaped from matrilineal, meaning that the family unit has the mother as the head, to patrilineal, where the family unit has the father at the head. Right. And this is that time where this happens at the time that this play happens, and this is also the time where ancient Athens is doing things like how should we handle questions like justice? How should we handle that? How should we handle, you know, women in society? And their decision was, well, they're really just vessels for our children. Yeah. And that's all they are. So just so I can understand kind of the the world that this play is coming to us in, uh, in terms of chronology, are, are the shifts in matrilineal to patrilineal society more convergent with the time that the play was published or more convergent with the time that we would associate with the Trojan War? Oh, so, yeah, the time of the Trojan War is 1200 it's BC. way, 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 it's, way, way it's, past. It's in a dark age of the ancient world. Right. No one knows anything. So the few people that lived in what is now modern-day Greece at the time of the Trojan War, Greek wasn't even a language then. Okay, great. Um, so that era, there's a very little actual information about it, uh, at least that I know. If there's a uh, someone who knows more history out there listening to the podcast, hit me up. Um, but no one really knows if the Trojan War actually, quote unquote, happened. Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of just legend at this point. Yeah. But, I mean, there was a place called Troy for certain, and it did yeah. disappear for certain. But I guess my question is, is this something that had already been... Uh, is the the patrilineal society something that had been in place for a little while and attributed to this sort of legendary trial of Eurystheus? Or is this something that is directly correlated to Aeschylus publishing uh, that play? I see. You're talking about causation. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure I, it is. It's just something I'm I'm definitely interested in. I would take a gander that plays like plays of today tend to be more uh, reflective rather than prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but plays in the ancient world and the ancient Greek classical age were very impactful and powerful. But my right, it was it was like the form of of not only entertainment but gaining information about your world. Yeah. So my so you can't understate the power that that play has. My suspicion is that it's reflecting the world and the changes and giving form to the social institutions and the social constructs. Yeah. And okay. Putting putting the this is the why to something that's already kind of happening and happening organically. I don't know that for a fact. 
Yeah, that's it's just an interesting question, though. It really for is us to continue researching. But it tells you something that justice does need a narrative. Yeah, you can't just start locking all your women in a room. You have to figure out. Well, is it okay for us? How is it just <laughs> for us to do that? Right? Like, if you're going to sit there and say we're going to take half of our society and oppress them, and we're going to say that that's okay. We do need a justification for that, in particular, if you're the ancient Greeks who believe in logic, who believe in reason, who believe in everything needs to have a root cause and a reason. This isn't a world where you can say, I'm doing this just because I can. Yeah. That would be an affront to, to Greek logos. Yeah. And if you believe in logic and you believe in reason, then it stands to reason that you would believe that Athena could be birthed from a headache and not from a woman. Well, I, I'm I'm just making a joke. You are like five thousand percent right. Yeah, I will I will paraphrase a great historian, a guy named Edward Gibbon, one of the greatest historians who ever lived. He wrote this, and this was about Roman religion. Um, but I think it could be said true. And by Roman religion, I don't mean Roman Catholic religion. I mean Roman pagan religion during the Roman Empire. It can probably be said true of the ancient Athenians, and it goes something like this. Uh, when it came to religion, the, uh, the, the philosopher found it equally false, the politician found it equally useful, and mm-hmm. the commoner found it equally true. Yeah. And that's probably very true for a lot, you know. And, and, though, and though they had logic, logic just started then. There were plenty of, like... The, yeah, they didn't have modern science or... No, compared to our world to the world that they have there, it is very ignorant and dark. Yeah. And it's pretty conceivable that a lot of them believe that, yeah, a god can, you know, just be birthed out of a head of, of, of and, their father. And if that helps me, you know, understand why I'm locking my wife in her room, then let's go for it. Sure. I'll take it. Well, and the other thing true, that, that the other thing true, that, that's not a good sentence. The other thing that you can, the other truth that you can wiggle out of this is uh, humankind can find any reason to justify the most horrific thing as long as it has form and substance that they can grapple and latch on to. Like, and Johnny Cochran's character kind of does this, so let's assume in the show, because I don't want to talk about the reality because I don't know, but let's assume in the show, The People versus O.J., that O.J. is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, Johnny Cochran latches on to the idea that he's innocent, even though that he knows that's that not true, but because that shines a light on some other injustices that he sees, he sees that as a balancing act. That is, it's kind of hypocritical in one way. It is, but yeah, it's, it's also kind of, kind of remarkable that what he does is, is harken back to a more platonic idea of justice, which is creating harmony between the state and the individual. True. Yeah. So I think that's a very interesting angle that they took with the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course, we don't, we're not inside Johnny Cochran's head, but I thought it was a very fascinating angle and it made things very ambiguous for me. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, one of the last shots is Johnny Cochran crying, you know, thinking, my God, our story is finally out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, by that, I'm pretty certain he meant, the black American story is now out there in the limelight and he's crying because, you know, and it's pretty true that did actually happen. That did shine a light right. on a lot of police brutality 
that was happening and still is happening today and something we're confronting now with, hey, our criminal justice system isn't exactly fucking just. Right. And right now there's a huge portion of our society that feels alienated and and abused and, and are alienated and abused from it. And now the narrative of justice, just like it can, it's, it's starting to shift and change to be like, hey, what's the purpose of the police? Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that we're wrestling with now. And, and that's because the story of what makes a good cop a good cop has changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, what do you got? So uh, some things that I wanted to to talk about here today are... Uh, I, I did a little bit of of research, and this is all just kind of a cursory research about uh, the history and the context and the the overarching concept of justice, because it's something that you know I feel like I've lived with for my whole life is is just kind of taking at face value what that word meant, and you know looking a little bit further and being challenged by obviously shows like OJ. Uh, even courtroom dramas, podcasts like Serial, uh, Making a Murderer, a, a real, which is a real trend. It's not new necessarily, but we're seeing more and more people's appetites for true crime and for detective stories, which we talked about a little bit a few episodes back. Episode three, I think, Sherlock. Yeah, yeah detected. Yeah, but there is there's certainly an appetite for it, and I do think um, I do think part of that the appetite for crime stories on our part, a little bit of that is a morbid fascination with our own mortality. A little bit of that is uh, a kind of excitement and an interest in the the depths and the capabilities of the human mind, which, you know, when, when it takes you to a, a an atrocity like something that, like a horrible murder, then there's something that we touch inside ourselves that's a little scary, but it's the same reason we like horror movies, you know? So I think that's part of it. But I also think that in stories like OJ and in stories uh, that we see on Law and Order or anything like that, what's really interesting is that it pulls back the curtain on the institutions that claim to represent us in the in, in the struggle for justice. And so I tried to get you know a more comprehensive understanding of what that is. So just to lay out a couple of kind of introductory concepts of justice for those who, like me, are kind of taking it for granted. And the, uh, just do it. <laughs> We're going to hear it. We'll cut it out. I was did just going to. Did everyone hear me put down the bottle of wine? I was just going to be quiet while you did it so that we could cut it out. Great. Whatever. It's better that it's in there. Moving on. So some introductory ideas of, of what justice is. Probably one of the earliest concepts that we have of it was actually laid out by Plato in his Republic. Ah, the Plato Republic. Yeah. So the, the famous uh, Greek philosopher Plato, uh, he laid out an, uh, a concept of justice, a theory of justice, that it is about harmony, that it pertains to not only the individual, but the state and the relationship between the individual and, and the state and the Republic that the individual inhabits. Uh, and it's about creating that harmony and seeking that out in moments of ambiguity. And what struck me about that, and hopefully I'm interpreting this correctly, but what struck me about that theory of justice was that it seemed like uh, like a relative and not an absolute. 
It seemed to say that to create harmony between the individual and the state, you have to assess the, uh, you know, the, the state of the state of things and say, this is how our society functions. This is how an individual is expected to function at this point in time in this place. And here's how we create harmony within that framework. Yeah, interesting. So that's kind of how I, how I interpreted that. We also have theories of divine command. So we have theories that justice is just handed down by God, and man has kind of no, no way of changing it. Uh, this sort of moral paradox that enters then is, so is justice good because it's handed down by God, or does God hand it down because it's good? And that gets you in kind of a, a crazy loop. A little in circle your mind. there, yeah. Uh, so is is there an objective good, or is there just God? Right. That 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 gets very circular in terms of its reasoning. Yeah. So very it starts quickly. to break down yeah. if you if you think about it too hard. And then you have natural law, which seems to me more like absolute, like that there is an objective moral. That there is, uh, that there is good and there is bad and there is just and there is unjust right. and there isn't any relativity there. So these were some things I was kicking around when trying to understand it. And I also got into uh, motifs of justice. So uh, the iconography that's associated. Uh, and Ooh, I love that word, iconography. Me too. And, and this was familiar. So if you've ever seen a courtroom or you've ever been in a courthouse of any kind, you've seen Lady Justice. And I, obviously I'm talking about the United States. I don't know if other uh, countries have you know, the same depictions of justice as we do, but we personify her as a woman uh, in a, a very classical uh, toga-type dress. She's blindfolded, carrying scales and a sword. Um, I'm 99% certain that's Roman iconography that we've adopted. It is, yeah. it is, yeah. So it's it's based on uh, Justitia, who is the Roman goddess of uh, of justice, and Justitia has a counterpart in Greek, and there's a few different versions of her. There's Dike, uh, there's Astrea, and there's, I believe, Themis or Themis, uh, a, a whole bunch of different justice goddesses. Who Excellent are, knowledge Yeah, there. kind yeah. of all one and kind of different. Uh, but... So, of course, the, the blindfold means justice is impartial. And the scales means justice seeks to create harmony and balance. So, hearkening back to Plato. And then the sword that she carries justifies that justice is swift and final. And so, these were some of the things that I explored. Uh, just in kind of getting a cursory knowledge of, of the evolution of justice. So, bringing it back to storytelling and bringing it back to the stories that we consume today, I thought it was very interesting to, to kind of take in the, the depiction of justice that we have, at least in, in U.S. institutions and the iconography that's associated with her, and apply that to like Plato, which I think is, is what we've adopted here as our theory of justice for the most part. And then say, okay, how does that fit into these stories that we take in? Interesting. That that just went down. You know, it made me think way back in the day when I first went to, to college, I, I started studying philosophy. And a lot of people would say, philosophy doesn't matter. 
And I used to argue like a oh. arrogant eight, 19 year old who thought he knew everything would argue, but you know, I never really had any convincing or real arguments, you know, hearing you're just kind of going through that synopsis of different ideas of justices at different time, morality, the state, I mean, that's philosophy in action. Absolutely. And our justice system is a working philosophy and it's based off of a story now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty certain our justice system is based off of English common law. That sounds right. Um, that there is a common set of generally agreed upon moral principles, like don't steal, don't kill, that, uh, and I think all of our legal precedences have some root in that English common law, which predates things like John Locke and, and yeah. Rousseau and Hobbes and the social contract that so I think that is based upon a more like harmonic version. Then there's the other aspect to it is what do you do? How do you reach that harmony? Is it about punishing the individual? Is it about getting that individual to rec to realize and repent and rehabilitate? Then there's this this other idea of like what does the sword do once you get the tipping yeah. scale? So okay, we know you did this this thing that's bad and everyone agrees it's bad. Now we've proven that it's bad and that you did it. Now, what do we do? You know, it's interesting how we've commodified justice in, in our modern prison system. I'm sorry, you look like you're trying to say something. I'm going to shut up. So this is an eternal question of how do we create that harmony and, and what does justice do when we put that sword into action? When we, when we actually deliver the final say of, of this, high ideal of justice. And for me, what storytelling has done is really shine a light on the fact that, yes, we have this high ideal of justice, but what happens when it's, say, a jury of your peers, or it's a, it's a judge who, you know, has, has gone through years and years and years of schooling to understand the law and understand morality, but every single human being comes to the table with their set of preconceived notions and their set of inherent biases, and how, as human beings, do we achieve that high ideal of justice when every single one of us has these, these flaws or these biases that we bring to the table? Mm. And that's why I've been so fascinated with stories like OJ uh, and stories like, uh, like Serial, too, listening to the court proceedings in Serial and everyone coming to the table with their preconceptions. I just... Real quick, can you give us the, the brief, because you mentioned Serial a few times, I think it's important. Just tell people what it is, if, if you don't mind. Well, yeah. Uh, let's plug another podcast on our podcast. That's okay. It's a community. <laughs> we don't make any joke. money doing this, so we're not competitors. Making a joke. Uh, so Serial is the immensely, immensely popular podcast by This American Life, hosted by Sarah Koenig. Uh, and the first season really swept the nation, so it was about... Uh, a young man named Adnan Syed who was uh, arrested and tried and imprisoned. It was, he was convicted and imprisoned for the murder of his girlfriend, Hay Lee, in high school. Uh, and what Sarah really tried to uncover was uh, really the truth behind the case because he's maintained his innocence for the last 15 years, and there are a lot of things that didn't add up in the court case. There wasn't really any physical evidence and so she went through all of the case files and learned a lot about it to try to come to some conclusion to understand it. And there's still there's still no answer. It's been a long time. Uh, and 
it really became this kind of nation sweeping thing that everybody took their own sides on. But there were so many, you know, interesting angles you could take from it. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks. And it's a great, I would recommend it. Yeah. Serial is pretty awesome. And it, it does a really good job creating a, a narrative to the crime and yeah. it, it does so without any judgment. Yeah. And it, Sarah creates an alternative narrative for what the state presented. And she also goes in and does that thing that I said before she pulls the curtain back on the legal system and on the, uh, on the attempts on behalf of his defense team to create a, a secondary narrative. And then of course the prosecution creating theirs and how it really all comes down to whoever tells the best and most convincing and compelling story. And sometimes that preys upon the fears or biases of the jury. Right. Um, yeah. There's another story that I wanted to briefly mention here at the end uh, to just bring us back into pop culture. Um, yeah, I love pop culture. And bring us back to one of our favorite things here at the Midnight Myth, which is comic books and comic book movies and superheroes. Uh, and that's Captain America Civil War, which came out last year? Uh, 2015. Oh, 2015. I think. Actually, sometime, could, in the, sometime in the last 20 years, this movie called Captain America Civil War came out. Yes, somewhere between... Between 1980 yes. and like... 2015 and a half. Sometime in that general It's pretty recent. Period. It's pretty recent and it's pretty <laughs> awesome. I, think it, I would say the best movie Marvel's done. It's, it's really quite good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a Captain America movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. I'm going to try not to spoil anything too bad because we're going to just do a brief kind of exploration of it. Um, but it's Captain America and the Avengers dealing with the fact that in the previous movie they had done something uh, to save a lot of lives that had actually taken a lot of lives as collateral damage. So it deals with superheroes trying to atone for uh, mistakes in the line of duty. Right. If you're fighting a supervillain that's threatening to destroy the city, you might save three quarters of the city. The other quarter, well, there's probably a lot of dead people then. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you hadn't done it, then more people probably would have died, but we can't prove a negative. But it also, it's an interesting thing, the character Vision also says, hmm, because he makes this interesting calculus that's saying since uh, Tony Stark who plays, uh, who is Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr., announced that he is Iron Man, the amount of possible world-ending events has exponentially increased this idea that their very strength invites challenge. Right, yikes. That they may in some way be culpable for all of the violence that they're bringing to the world. Anyway, so this is kind of the premise for the uh, for the start of the film, and the Avengers come under some scrutiny from the government and they're uh, encouraged to sign a document saying that they are going to proceed with oversight. So they're essentially going to be uh, employed by a government agency that's going to determine what they respond to, what they do, and give them guidelines for how they work. Now this all results in a pretty compelling moral argument that deals with their freedom, that deals with um, you know, moving forward, being at the hands of the agenda of human beings outside of themselves. And so they, they kind of wrestle with their own moral superiority, with their own understanding of what they are capable of, 
uh, and, and it really divides two sides of the Avengers. Now, a central theme that we come back to in this, in this story that I think is, is huge in literature and storytelling, but is really clearly presented here in Civil War, is the idea of justice and the idea of vengeance and how the two are not the same thing. They are never the same thing. Now we have, you know, a head-on fight between uh, Captain America and Iron Man. And both of them are, you know, they're superheroes, but they're men. And they have feelings and they have families and they have, you know, they have, they have hearts that can be really torn, that can be really emotional, that have attachments. And they come to a head where Tony Stark, Iron Man, is so blinded by wanting to get vengeance for an injustice that was wrought against him and his family that he kind of doesn't care what the consequences are to someone that Steve Rogers, Captain America, cares about. And I think that's a really wonderful thing to keep in mind when we look at this concept of justice, is how do we keep it from its, its link to vengeance? Because I think it's tempting. It is absolutely tempting to want vengeance when you're wronged or when someone you associate with is wronged, when someone you align with is wronged. It's natural to want to see somebody pay. But in understanding the difference between harmony and retribution, justice and vengeance are never the same. Yeah. And if we go back to Aristius, where we started, what is significant and positive about moving away from people getting vengeance or people getting their own form of justice and going to a trial is that they, there's a separation then between vengeance, I'm getting vengeance because I feel I was wrong, versus no, we have a system on how we deal with these things and they're predicated on these notions of law, of moral truths that we found. And that's the positive aspect of the Aristius. You know, it's interesting too about, you mentioned Civil War. If you, you know, watching that movie and you look at in the, the first like two thirds of it, the argument of Steve Rogers, Captain America versus Tony Stark, Iron Man. Iron Man has the better argument. Yeah. He's just like, if we don't accept limitations, we're no different than the bad guys. And the world has said, hey, you've done too much without any sort of legal authority. We're going to have to ground you into our international legal order. Because right now you're vigilantes. And that's not okay. And to a certain extent, that sort of makes sense. As the movie progresses and the argument for Tony becomes emotive, when he realizes that part of the story between him and Steve Rogers and then Bucky the Winter Soldier is that Bucky assassinated his mother, spoiler alert, too late. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that then it becomes to him, I don't even care anymore. I now, I'm now going to use my power. I just want to get the guy who killed my mom. Yeah, and that's all that's going to matter. I'm just going to get him because I can. And in that respect, Steve Rogers then gets the higher moral, moral argument saying, no, I'm not going to give my, my freedom to these institutions, which I know are corrupt. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very, very good point. You got any last words? You want to play a game? I want to play a game. All right. I'm going to make you go first because I still have not figured mine out. Okay. Close. All right. Okay, everybody. Hit us up. 
So every week here at the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game here at the end just to kind of have a little fun with the characters and situations we've been exploring. Uh, so we would like to invite you to play along. So please tweet us at the Midnight Myth uh, on Twitter uh, with your responses to this or hit us up on Facebook. Just search the Midnight Myth Podcast or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Oh, also check out our blog. And check out our blog there at the website. Uh, there's a lot of fun supplemental materials that we uh, delve a little bit deeper than we can in a, a short podcast. So check it out. Leave us some feedback. Now, for this week's game. Bum, bum, bum. You are a sculptor, a designer, a, a visionary artist. The Justice Department of the United States has commissioned you to redesign Lady Justice. So that woman in the toga with the, the sword and the scales and the blindfold, you have carte blanche to redesign what justice looks like in America. How do you design her? What's and she holding? Whatever I want. Whatever you want. I can make Lady Justice. I can reform the iconography to my own ends. Yes. All right. I'm going to go first. Yes. Mohawk, no toga, get rid of the scales and the blindfold, and where the scales are, a middle finger. Oh my God. The sword's still very up in the, up in the air because of the sword, and wearing a bad religion t-shirt and oh shredded jeans. Oh my God, jeans. it's a punk rock justice. Oh yeah, I'm making justice punk fucking rock. That's badass. Can you explain your, uh, your reasoning? Oh yeah, certainly. So I am, and, uh, you know, I, I don't ever really fully identify with is or isms or genres. Like, like I tried to stay away from that. Except but, for punk rock. Except that I have an affinity for punk rock and punk rock culture. Me too. And, uh, always have my favorite band in the world is bad religion and no effects and especially that punk rock that came out in like the early nineties. I love it. Um, and to me, if I had the opportunity to radically reform the iconography of justice in America, I'm going to show what a fucking joke it all is and how punk rock I am. That's great. Yeah. So That's I'm going to make amazing. it just, and I mean a bright pink mohawk and maybe a nose ring now that I'm thinking about it and some tattoos. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to totally punk rock Lady Justice. So everyone that knows that they're getting a sentence by the man, you know, for their petty <laughs> drug crime, that's fucking bullshit. I I like that it it highlights the the hilarity in this. It, I like that it satir, satirizes it. That's my favorite part. Yeah. That's how I would do it. That's really cool. Right or wrong, you know, that's probably not right in the respect that, like, I'm, I'm totally throwing out decorum or respect or anything like yeah, that. Fuck it. But like you gave me the contract. So yeah, you got to live with that. now. Yeah. You should know if you're hiring Derek to, to redo justice, you're going to get some, you're going to you do a background check first. Yeah. You're, you're either going to get a dragon or something punk rock. Those are the two things. Nice. Actually a dragon would be kind of Batman. Punk rock. It's just Batman. Batman actually. Uh, for, Never mind. I'm a, I was about to totally open up a can of worms. Back you're getting a whole thing. All yeah. right. Uh, I think I know what mine is, uh, and I'm going to go a very different direction than you. So I just uh, hiccuped. So we've got Lady Justice. She's got a blindfold, scales, and a sword. Let's lose the sword. Let's lose the scales. 
Let's lose the blindfold. Let's lose the clothes. Let's lose the gender. We're going. And hopefully, you know, I would be in, in this universe, I would be like a super good conceptual artist. So it wouldn't just look like a naked mannequin, but we're talking naked and like gender neutral or possibly hermaphroditic. Uh, bald, you know, like totally bald head and like eyes that point like bright rays of light and like rays of light coming out of every appendage. Why the rays of light? So, so the idea for the whole thing, I want, I want like a total blank slate. Uh, so when I was talking before about coming to the table with all of your biases, this justice, this image of justice would have no biases would have no preconceptions. And so it's is presented as completely blank. Interesting. And then the rays of light are, uh, you know, to illuminate injustice and ah. to, and to bring the light of the sun or the light of the moon or the light of, you know, knowledge and truth to the system. I see. Interesting. Yeah. That's what I got. Yeah, genderless, gender both, genderless. Yeah, like all, like in some way, I would have it be like all genders, right? Like all, like every possible, like pan gendered, right? That's very cool. Yours is a little more symbolically thoughtful Aww. than mine. I mine, like yours though. Yeah, well, mine is a total like you know, stick your thumb in the eye. It's clever. Yeah, just totally like. When we thought of this game and you suggested it, I was just like, okay, good. I uh, know what done. I'm going to do. And I just thought of mine just now. And I was like, I instantly know. I'm like, oh, I'm going to turn Justice Punk Rock. Okay. All right, guys. Please hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or our website. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please, please leave us some feedback on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, a rating, just hit, a, hit the five stars button or uh, leave us a review if you can. It really helps us get out there. And of course, as always, tell your friends tell your enemies, tell your neighbors. And guys, uh, we've been doing this now. This is our 10th episode. So this is a bit of an anniversary. So we made it through our first 10. Yeah. We would love, 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 love to hear from our listeners, ideas, thoughts. Did we leave something out on an episode that's bothering you that you want us to revisit? Uh, do you have a great idea for an episode? Hit us up. We Please. want to dialogue with you. The whole idea of the midnight myth isn't just our voices. We want a community of voices. So talk to us. I love it. Any last words? Yeah, I've got one thing to say. Is it be, be kind. kind. See you next week, guys. <laughs>